0: They're behaving like they've got something to hide. And it's almost out of a sort of ancient Greek tragedy. Donald Trump, you know, has been told his fate might hang in the balance because of his supposed ties to Russia.
1: Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, executive editor for News, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by FP staff writer Jenna McLaughlin, who covers the intelligence community. We also have joining us from New York, Michael Weiss, a CNN investigative reporter for international affairs and the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. And calling in from Moscow is FP's Moscow correspondent, Amy Ferris Rotman. She's reported across the former Soviet Union for some years and was previously with the Wall Street Journal and Reuters. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. Have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at forumpolicy.com. So it was not just 20 minutes ago that Jenna sent me an email with the sentence just, here we go again. So apparently Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, is going to be um, testifying an open session tomorrow on the Russia investigation. Yes, Jenna, what can me. we
2: expect?
1: <laughs> and more importantly, will the bars open early again?
2: Right. Uh, we haven't heard anything from the bars yet, but I think it, this means that Sessions has been finally dragged into a committee. I've seen a lot of different stories saying that he kind of was venue shopping for which which committee he would actually testify before, and I think I didn't he know tried. It was to, an option. Do you get to do that? <laughs> I think a lot of committees wanted him to be there. You know, Appropriations wanted him. Judiciary wanted him. Intel wanted him. And I think he kind of went for Intel because he thought maybe he could push for something closed. Uh, but he failed at that, obviously. The the Intel uh, committee's Burr has actually really been pushing for open sessions. So that's where he'll be tomorrow.
1: But actually, do you expect it to be? I mean, the, the Comey hearing was just it was sort of quintessential American political drama. Do you expect anything like that out of Sessions?
2: I think he'll try to downplay that kind of thing, but I think that the senators are there for that. Oh, and, how disappointing. and they'll be pushing for it. Michael, what do you think?
0: Uh, open sessions, indeed. I think James Comey is the one who wants to most hear from the attorney general, given that apparently he told uh, Congress behind closed doors that actually um, Sessions had met with the Russian ambassador, Kislyak, more than twice. Uh, which would be yet another level of the misrepresentation to Congress during the confirmation hearing. So, I mean, I would expect, you know, they're going to grill this guy mercilessly because if now they think that he's in a sense lied twice – to Congress once in in the original confirmation, second time in clarifying his original remarks, and now possibly if there's evidence of a third meeting that he did not account for uh, yet again.
1: Well, he puts them up. I mean, everyone involved in the investigation is sort of at risk of obstruction of justice. I mean, do you Mm -hmm. see any chance that he'll try to get out of the open hearing tomorrow?
0: Uh, he may well do. Uh, look, I think that the, the real issue here is, and, and just based on the months that have gone by now since the Christopher Steele dossier dropped and reporters trying to kind of pull together the pieces, I think that what's happening is the more Trump and his team try to make Russia go away as a story, the more they end up not only kind of falling into it, but risking their own administration by possibly committing crimes such as obstruction of justice. I mean, it's always, it's the cliche, it's the cover up and not the original crime. I don't even know if there's an original crime. Uh, we've yet to see any proof of collusion. We've seen some a series, uh, uh, sort of a circumstantially very interesting and eyebrow-raising series of meetings between the Trump campaign people and Russian officials, including former FSB officer who runs VEB Bank and Jared Kushner. But again, none of that is necessarily untoward. What's untoward is how they're behaving and not sort of fessing up to what they've done. So, yeah, I mean, look, this is a guy who had to recuse himself from, you know, the, the, the special prosecutor's investigation into the Trump-Russia connections because he was part of the campaign. He was one of the first people to declare for Donald Trump. I think, if I'm not mistaken, he was a key foreign policy advisor, uh, during the transitional period, he's got he's as he's as, you know in as much of the soup as, as the rest of them are.
1: Well, is it sort of a I mean to take you know perhaps a devil's advocate view if there is no collusion and there is no smoking gun and I'm, I'm kind of of that possibility as well. What it's sort of a, a, a lose lose situation for them. How do they get out of the current morass and out of the investigation?
0: well, coming clean about everything and saying, you know, look, this is the these are the meetings we had, these this is the best of our knowledge. This is what we discussed, blah, blah, blah. And then hoping that nothing that comes to the fore later, be it in The Washington Post, The New York Times, or let me give a shout out to CNN, um, is going to undercut any of that. But, you know, look, they're behaving like they've got something to hide. And it's almost out of a sort of ancient Greek tragedy. Donald Trump. You know, has been told his fate might hang in the balance because of his supposed ties to Russia and is doing everything he can to destroy that story and to destroy that 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 topic. And in doing so, he is actually waltzing inexorably toward that fate. Um, Americans keep talking about this. They're not talking about his strategic realignment toward the Gulf Arab states. They're not talking about infrastructure. They're not talking about any of the things he wants them to be talking about. They're talking only about this. And now you have the FBI director, former FBI director, come out and accuse the president of the United States of lying in a internationally televised open session of Congress and then also accuse him of being so untrustworthy that the FBI director had to take contemporaneous notes about meetings he had with the president because he was afraid the president would come out and lie further about the substance of those meetings which is this just is unprecedented I mean
1: it's unprecedented it's fascinating Amy for a second you know you had written in foreign policy just a couple of weeks ago that after decades of hectoring from Washington on issues such as unfair elections a clampdown down on the press and widespread corruption Moscow was happily Watching chaos and scandal and embroil the Trump administration, the more lawless Washington appears, the more Russians are howling with laughter. What was the reaction in Russia to the Comey hearing? Probably not as widely watched as it was here, but was that just sort of more fuel for the uh, comedy there? It was actually, it was very interesting because the
3: exact opposite happened, um, which is why I also think that there, that there may be something to it, that there, there is something that's being hidden. Um, unlike the other scandals engulfing the White House, um, the James Comey hearing was basically ignored in Russia. Um, it wasn't shown on state television until it was already halfway through. And then it, when it was, it was painted in a very strange light, um, as if Russia, Russia was, painted as um, a victim caught up in this kind of mad chaos which was happening in America. Um, one state-run television host even said, oh, Russia's become the next Monica Lewinsky, um, <laughs> which, which actually, I mean, doesn't really make much sense. And yet somehow that- still funny, but I don't know why. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of Russian sexism and and Russian uh, misunderstanding of American politics all wrapped up in one. But it was, um, uh, you know, they described Monica Lewinsky as this poor, innocent woman who was lured into Bill Clinton's arms. And they described Russia as being in a similar situation. This was on Russia's Channel One, which is the kind of major state broadcaster here and often a Kremlin mouthpiece. Um, And they described Russia in relation to the Comey Testimony as as yes as being caught uh, alleged interference as being caught up in this kind of swirling madness that was happening far far away. Um, so it was actually a very different tone. The laughter was gone. The jokes were gone. And instead, it was this kind of oh well, hang on a minute. That this isn't really anything to do with us. And and if it is to do with us, you're being you're being unnecessarily mean. So it was um, it was a very different a very different stance. But I mean. Going on from, from what Michael said, I mean, I agree that there isn't an original crime yet. There's no smoking gun. But for the Russians, I mean, the Russians are also acting like they're hiding something, um, I, I would say. I mean, f- first it was laughter and sh- schadenfreude, and now it's just kind of embarrassment slash painting themselves as, as, as a victim.
1: What what made it turn the corner? I mean, I think actually, you know, there were there were pictures over the weekend that Smirnoff Vodka is um, has a new ad in Washington, D.C. mocking President Trump's ties to Russia. And so there have been billboards spotted that shows that where the vodka company touts that it's, quote, made in America. Um, what, I mean, so there is still this comedy element of it, but why did Comey hearing in particular, sort of, why was that a turning point? I think that
3: it no longer, I mean, I think basically Russia, even though Russia loves to mock America and it likes to watch it, watch its, you know, kind of partial downfall, if you will, uh, currently, there's also a lot more at stake, which is Russia really wants sanctions lifted, um, economic sanctions lifted. It, It genuinely hoped that the Trump administration would do that. Um, It's not happening for various reasons, uh, not least because of the ongoing investigation into Russia's links um, to the Trump campaign. And so I think I think Russia may be. Um, I think the turning point maybe happened is they've realized that the sanctions are not going to be lifted anytime soon, that this is going to be drawn out. it's it's going to take ages. um now we're having sessions testify. I mean, you know, so it's going to it's going to keep going. um and the more it drags on, the less funny it becomes for Russians, and the more it just becomes a massive impediment to their ultimate goal, which is to have those economic sanctions lifted.
1: So it's really about the bottom line for them in some sense when it actually hits them economically then it's no
3: longer a laughing matter. Is that is that the basis then? I would say so. I mean, it's um, – I mean, it, also, the, you know, the, there's always this kind of underlying current of uh, Cold War tit-for-tat, Cold War kind of sentiment. Russia's still annoyed that um, – that they lost it um, and, and and that reverberates through society and politics and all sorts of happenings in Russia today. Um, so that's always there. But I, I think that, um, I mean, Putin and Trump are yet to meet. They're, they're meant to meet next month. I think that will shed a lot of light on what's going on. I mean, I'd love to know what they're really going to discuss. But I mean, I think at this point, the Russians are also realizing that it's not just Trump. I mean, it, it, he's not, even though he does act unilaterally a lot, they've also realized that they've got this enormous American infrastructure to deal with and things are not going to be as easy um, as they thought.
1: Yeah, let's turn back to the investigations for a moment. So in my mind, there's actually two questions. There's the question of collusion. Um, between the Trump campaign and Russia on electoral interference. And then there's the question of electoral interference itself and how sure we are about the reports that it was Kremlin-directed interference. And there's, for instance, you know, there was a Washington Post report, I think it was this morning— on um, that hackers allied with the Russian government have devised a cyber weapon that has the potential to be the most disruptive yet again for electric systems. Uh, Jenny, you probably saw that report. I mean, is there a tendency to overhype Russia? I'm not saying this article in particular, but do we sometimes overhype Russian capabilities in this area?
2: Uh, sometimes. I think that there are other nations that have these high-level cyber capabilities as well, and sometimes it's that we hype the actual cyber capabilities and what might or may not happen. I mean, we've been seeing stories about potential infrastructure or electronic attacks on the grid for a while, and we haven't really seen evidence that that will happen anytime soon, or would be particularly advantageous towards somebody like Russia, you have to actually think of kind of what the intentions there and what the gains would be for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Something like that definitely wouldn't lift sanctions if it turned out that they shut down the power grid in New England or something. Right. Um, so I, I do think that there is a lot of focus on Russia anytime that we see this. I mean, just today in Politico, there was also a story about how they're focusing cyber attacks on U.S. service members and intelligence officers as well. And I think that it does indicate that not only are there capabilities, but a lot of appetite for doing this. This is clearly a strategy of choice for Russia. So we, we tend to see it as, as particularly animated there.
3: I agree. I mean, a few days ago, uh, Putin bizarrely said that maybe American hackers, uh, sorry, his spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, said that American hackers exist and there's been um, attacks or, att- I know, I mean, it is laughable, attempted attacks on President Vladimir Putin's site. But I mean, while it's laughable and kind of silly, um, it, it also, to me, spoke volumes because Russia's a big fan of whataboutism. Um, And if they're beginning to speak that way and begin to point fingers, to me that says um, that they know they're about to be perhaps exposed.
0: Yeah, it's also easier to wage cyber espionage than it is to wage the more conventional human intelligence Orientated form of it. I mean, Putin cheekily joked, I think, with Megyn Kelly. Well, you know, it could have been Russian patriots that that attempted to do this. Well, indeed. I mean, this is this is the the tradecraft. You, the GRU and the FSB hire hackers to, in, in a weird way, it, it almost. Vindicates the Donald Trump line that some 400 pound person sitting in their bedroom is doing this. Um, there's a, an air of plausible deniability. You, you outsource the criminality to organized crime or to, in this case, um, some collective of, of cyber savvy technicians. Uh, and then say it wasn't us, right? And the Russians have been doing this actually with respect to uh, assassinating veterans of the Chechen wars in Turkey. There's was a good story in the BBC. I published about six months ago about this. Actually, figuring out that Russian mobsters and hitmen had been hired by the FSB to go into Turkey and sort of bump off all of these old graying manes from the uh, you know the insurgency in the 90s. This is the same thing, but it's harder to 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 make that connection now. I've talked to European intelligence officials, and you've seen some reporting, particularly what The Intercept released last week, the NSA document, showing that, look, there is a way to follow a forensic breadcrumb trail, if you like. Um, One European service told me that they themselves are in the Russian security service systems and they understand the instructions that are being handed down. This is not even at the level of trying to penetrate the DNC or the DCCC. It's it's about massaging and finessing and, and planting narratives with these Russian trolls. You know, push this story out there or, or diminish this story, um, say that that would be favorable to Hillary Clinton, that kind of thing. Um, but I think, you know, look, as an intelligence operation goes, if you if you assume the worst, if you assume that Russia directly interfered with the election and may have actually tilted the balance, in which case this is the greatest intelligence coup perpetrated from even the Soviet era. They've never been able to do this before. If you assume that, then in a way, it's approximate victory, the likes of which they've never seen. But ultimately, I think it will lead to their strategic defeat. The one cardinal rule of intelligence work is don't get caught. And now the only thing we seem to be talking about is how nefarious the Russian intelligence services are for doing this. I mean, when you've got Rachel Maddow sounding like Whittaker Chambers, you know you've kind of shifted the argument in the American sort of liberal electorate. Uh, and now it's Russia, Russia, Russia. And yes, we do run the risk of overhyping and uh, you know being hyperbolic about their capabilities and the threat level. But this is not something that, that in the long term Putin wants to see. He does not want the conversation to be about him as a great power in the remaking. The idea is to do that on the sly and to outfox and and hoodwink the United States at every turn, be it in Ukraine or the Balkans or Syria, but not have America now decide we need to have essentially containment 2.0 of Russia because Russia cannot afford it. Um, economically, they're weak. Militarily, they're weak, say, for nuclear weapons. I mean, you can talk to Alexander Goltz or Mark Gagliotti or the people who know this stuff far better than I. Uh, they can't afford to reenter a Cold War, at least as it was waged you know, before the Berlin Wall came down.
1: Amy, what is the end game? I mean, from the standpoint of Putin, I mean, if this is not a success, I mean there's a there was a tendency to beginning to think of the election of Trump as this great success for Putin, but it, it is clearly not if you look as you mentioned on the sanctions. what is the preferred end game?
3: I mean I, well, lifting of sanctions, obviously, but I think the ultimate uh, ending is. Um, he's he's creating and securing his legacy. That that is what Putin's doing. That's a lot of what he's doing. Um, he's he's 64. He's not meant to be in the best of health, um, you know. And um, there is no clear successor at all. Uh, people talk, you know, Medvedev, um, who, was, who was widely thought to be his successor, is, is no longer, is no longer um, appropriate because he's been basically hounded out by uh, the previous protests and by the corruption scandals engulfing him. So basically, I think Putin is in a situation where, yes, he wants this ultimate victory, this massive coup that the Soviet Union couldn't even uh, pull off. And I think he's annoyed and somewhat um, embarrassed that it's backfired, um, which is maybe why they're beginning to get a bit more quiet and a bit less victorious at the moment about what's going on. But um, he, he wants, uh, he's very interested in how his country is going to look 30 years d- down the road, um, as well as how he's going to look. And he wants to be a victor. He wants to be the one who restored Soviet era glory to Russia. Um, that, that, I mean, that is very, very clearly his goal.
1: It's funny. I'm, you know, I'm among us, certainly old enough to remember the Iran-Contra investigations, and I think we don't talk about them enough now. So I went down this morning to see, Okay, well, what came out of it? And I'd forgotten a lot of this Casper Weinberger, secretary of defense, indicted on two counts. Um, He received a pardon. Um, Bud McFarlane, National Security Advisor, convicted of withholding of evidence. He, too, received a pardon by George H.W. Bush. Elliot Abrams, again, obstruction, withholding of evidence. And he was pardoned. You go down the list, and I think there were about 10 indictments and a couple convictions. And almost all of them were either overturned or the people involved were given pardons. Jenna, do you think we'll see something similar out of this investigation in the end, a list of indictments and then eventually? Pardons by a possible future president, Pence or Trump? Yeah, I I honestly
2: think that that is a pretty good prediction, honestly. I mean, we see everybody kind of talking about how there's so much fire, the fans being flamed, everything that's going on that's so crazy. Um, If we see indictments at all, I think is a question, still an open question. it's it's going to be hard to see the appetite, especially of the Republicans in Congress, to really go after uh, charges against a lot of these people. And there's already so many arguments, especially from the Comey hearing, people saying that, you know, this testimony actually really backs up Trump and says that he didn't do anything untoward. He wasn't under investigation, and he didn't pressure Comey. He only said that he hoped he would do certain things. Uh, so I think we're already seeing that really being tested and... If we get indictments at all, I think that you're entirely right that, that they could very, very easily be pardoned pretty quickly. But By who? The, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> Michael, do you have any guesses <laughs> of how this will play out?
0: Well, it's sort of my, my fantasy baseball version yes, of the yes. Trump administration <laughs> is um, the Republicans say, like, let, let us assume that a few of the people do end up going to jail or face the prospect of going to jail. Mike Flynn, Jared Kushner, maybe Jeff Sessions, right? Uh, In that set of circumstances, as sort of bovine as the Republicans have been, even the so-called never Trumpers, they're going to have to make a deal and they're going to have to say to him, look you cannot stay in power because we are going to lose the House. We're going to lose the Senate. The next president is assuredly going to be democratic. And all the achievements that we thought we had, even under you, are going to come to dust. So they would have to make it, you know, suggest to him, maybe now is the time to, in your own sort of unique Trumpian way, declare victory. We'll give you a ticker tape parade. Let's bring in, you know, President Pence, Uh, Who can then pardon everybody and kind of wash the dirty laundry in in this foul administration and let's get on with business because they're not going to achieve what they want to achieve whether it's repealing Obamacare or uh, changing the tax code or destroying the Department of Energy or whatever it is that they want to do as long as this is the the only thing – this is the A1 story day after day after day. Now, I, I say that's the fantasy baseball version. Do I think that Donald Trump has it within himself to relinquish power? Voluntarily, no. I I think that he's he's going to fight this. He's going to go to the mattresses on this. Now, the the difference is, you know, you're not just facing what your own party in both houses of Congress think about the matter. You're facing a seemingly and indeed, I think the last few months have vindicated this this notion of an independent Justice Department that could actually start putting handcuffs on people. I mean, the FBI is now being led by a new person. Uh, There is a special prosecutor who is going to look into obstruction of justice. Remember, what Comey supposedly exonerated Donald Trump for, that ship has sailed. Okay, well, maybe it hasn't. Maybe there is collusion that will be uncovered down the line. But now we're talking about what Donald Trump has tried to do to block an independent investigation, which is a crime. So we're we're in a new set of, of, you know, sort of a a new reality, if you like. Um, And this is, again, I don't see how this administration comes away from this clean. I don't see how people aren't going to, at the very minimum, get fired or, or forcibly or be forced to resign, uh, much less you know, if, if somebody is going to go to jail and if indictments are going to be handed out. But uh, yeah, look, he, he will probably pardon people left and right and say, I'm doing this because our crooked system railroaded <laughs> these innocent good men like Mike Flynn and so on and so on. And now it's time for the country to move on. That's the Donald Trump that-
1: So you don't see anyone going to prison over this?
0: And not in the long term. I see people that that could be, you know, facing trial and and might be found guilty in a court of law. But then I I see them being, um, you know, sort of let out of jail free. Here's a question: if, sure.
1: if Flynn is indicted, how many former national security advisors have been indicted? We have to do a count here. <laughs> yeah, maybe that'll be a, a good long story. It's, it's actually sort of a I'm a dangerous position to be in. As, well, so Michael, you, as you talked about, it's funny how Russia is now a one right now almost every day. But at the same time, Amy, there are protests going on in Russia which traditionally don't get much coverage. What, what's going on in in moscow today can you talk about that
3: yeah sure i actually i was i was i attended it um earlier as a as a journalist and um it's it was today was absolutely massive it was a huge blow to to putin i would say the, i mean it's still ongoing so we don't really know about the numbers but essentially navalny Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader, changed at the very last minute last night to move his sanctioned allowed protest, um, and he, because they had been denied sound equipment, um, and he decided to move it to the very center of Moscow in Pushkin Square, where people were already gathering for Russia Day. Today's a national holiday, and it was a massive, massive disruption. Hundreds of people were arrested. Tens of thousands showed up, um, and it was really, really nasty. Uh, it was very, very aggressive. There were Lots of riot police. There were also uh, the army was out, which I've never seen before at a protest. Um, Yeah. And and very uh, just like we saw in late March with the previous Navalny organized protests, very young people were out. I mean, we're talking teenagers, people in their early 20s.
1: So uh, here's a question. Do the sanctions against Russia, basically the economic situation, are these helping fuel the protests at all? I mean, could this be a product of unintended consequences of what Putin has
3: done? I don't think so. I mean, no, I think the resentment was there. Regardless. Before. Yeah, I, because these protests also, st- I mean, they started in earnest in 2011. Um, 2012, and then they died down because things, uh, the mayor was replaced and things were changed, and their, some of their demands were listened to, but now it's and it's come back with with gusto um, and re- renewed vigor, and I don't think it's connected to the sanctions at all. It is, though, however, connected um, in some way to the fact that young people are fed up. Um, of of seeing their country. um, Well, first of all, they're fed up of the corruption and they're fed up of Putin's rule and not being listened to. But they know that they're sort of not really a laughing stock, but they know that they're an alleged source of evil in the world. Um, They are aware of that. Um, They're aware of it because they're tuned into social media in a way they weren't five years ago or six years ago. And they're embarrassed. Um, and, you know, they want to learn English, they they, they dress as hipsters or gipsy, as you say in Russian, and they, they want to be part of the world and part of Europe. Um, and that's a very, very strong message coming from the youths, a very surprising message. I mean, each each one of these protests I go to, I'm shocked by how many people turn up.
0: And I would add to that, actually, if you were born when Putin came to power as president, you're now 17 years old you're in high school, you're reading blogs, you're on the internet, you're watching the Navalny anti-corruption foundation exclusives into Medvedev's personal corruption and so on and so forth. So you have alternative streams of information that you don't have to subject yourself to Kislyov's, you know, 10 minutes of hate every week or whatever. Um, And you have not known any other form of government. This is the thing. This is the sclerosis that always sets in with dictatorships, however you want to define them as modern or postmodern whatever. If you grow up and there's not been any kind of change in the people that you see leading the country you you chafe you you get tired of it you want something new uh, whatever that may be and i think that's it's a generational phenomenon that that unlike say the the Bolotnaya protests uh, you know a few years ago when these these kids essentially were too young to really appreciate what's going on now they're about to go off to university and you know are they going to be under vladimir putin's reign and when they're in graduate school or when they become doctors and lawyers and engineers or what have you so this is the thing i think that's that's really behind this
3: Absolutely, it's totally a generational thing. In fact, I spoke to two young kids, well, I say kids, they were in their early 20s, but um, who were protesting earlier today, and they said they actually watched the Balotnaya protests, uh, but they were, I think, 14, 15 years old then, and they said that they they didn't really understand it, but they knew it was wrong, um, and and that now this time has come round, they were delighted that they could they could participate, um, and they fully understood what it means. So yeah, it is a generational gap, and that's also something that Putin uh, doesn't understand. Uh, you know, the Duma is extremely. Well, first of all, it's extremely male. Um, and, it's ex- and most people are uh, from the Soviet generation. So, so, I mean, you know, he's not addressing their concerns or their voices at all. Um, but going back to what you're saying, Sharon, just briefly, I mean, I, I suppose the sanctions indirectly also affect Um, the mood here in the sense that the economy is really, really poor. So, I mean, that is mostly to do with the oil price, uh, but the sanctions played a really large role in that as well. But I don't think that the the youths necessarily connect it. At least they don't talk about it that way.
1: Right. Well, let's wrap up here with I, I guess we could call it the uh, foreign policy fantasy football or is it baseball? You could tell of indictments. Who is the first to join this team? I'm going to guess Michael Flynn. Jenna? Flynn was my guest, too. Yeah, Absolutely. Mm. Michael. For
0: sure. Yep.
1: Yep. Yeah. Amy, do you from Moscow care to weigh in on that?
3: <laughs> no, that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, well, he sat he sat next to Putin. Surely that's um, that right there that, you know, for the Russia Today anniversary. Right. So, <laughs> that, that was the. key. So did Jill since.
0: Stein, by the way. Everyone, yeah, know. I can't
3: really understand what that was about. But, um, I don't know, we'll ever understand. That. Well, there you
1: have it. The uh, first member of the uh, fantasy football team is Michael Flynn. Um, thank you for joining us on the ER. Please tune in next time. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.